Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Hello, my name is Thomas and welcome to the Emerald Podcast Series. Today, I'm joined by three special guests to discuss the topic of suicide and self-harm. Sarah Waters is a professor of French studies with the School of Languages, Culture and Societies at the University of Leeds. Dr. Kathy Brennan is an associate professor in psychological and social medicine with the School of Medicine also at the University of Leeds. And Dr. Hazel Marzetti is a research associate with the School of Health and Social Science at the University of Edinburgh. All three have contributed to a special edition in the Journal of Public Mental Health entitled Suicide and Self-Harm new research directions. Just like to say thank you very, very much for, for joining me. And I've been looking forward to this topic quite a bit, actually. Uh, you've all been involved with uh, the Emerald Journal in the Journal of Public Mental Health. Can I first of all ask you, how did you get involved with that? Could I start with Professor Sarah Waters? Yes, absolutely. So I was approached by one of the editors, by Julian Ashton, to ask whether I'd be interested in putting together a a volume on suicide and self-harm. And we had this idea to bring together research developments in the field and also to try to bring together very different disciplinary perspectives and so that was the, the the sort of rationale behind the volume, trying to bring together new research developments in the field, a range of different researchers to to sort of give a sense of what's going on in, in suicide research and in research on self-harm. It is a very unusual topic. Can you tell a little bit about why you were approached to, to head this? Well, I have published previously in the Journal of Public Mental Health, and so I knew Julian. And my own research is very much focused on suicide and more particularly work-related suicide. And so Julian and I put our heads together about who we might invite and who was doing interesting work at the moment in this field. It sounds like a very collaborative edition. Can I pull in one of your collaborators, Dr. Hazel Marzetti? Would you like to explain some of your involvement with this? So I'm working at the University of Edinburgh on a project funded by the Leverhulme Trust called Suicide in As Politics. And as part of that, we're kind of using a critical policy analysis technique called What's the Problem Represented to Be? And the idea of that technique is that we look at the kinds of interventions that are suggested within policies and work backwards from there to see what the problem is represented to be. So what the problem of suicide in this instance is represented to be. And that's what the paper was on. Thank you. And when you're looking at these factors, are you looking at factors that lead to suicide? We're not particularly looking at risk factors. We don't do risk factor research. We're looking specifically at the suicide prevention policies of the four UK nations in the time period 2009 to 2019 um, and doing a, a critical policy analysis of those suicide prevention policies, looking at kind of what is in those suicide prevention policies, what kind of interventions are suggested within those suicide prevention policies, and then working backwards from there to see what the problem of suicide is represented to be. Thank you very, very much. And uh, finally, can I introduce uh, Dr. Cathy Brennan? Would you like to explain some of your involvement with this issue? Yeah, so I work at the University of Leeds, same institution as uh, Sarah, and we've been um, collaborating on a 
interdisciplinary project that was funded through an award for university that was looking at bringing diverse perspectives together to explore the interplay between person and place and how that might um, impact on risk of suicide. So we ran a few seminars. We organised a, a workshop where we where we had quite a few people and a lot of practitioners and researchers brought together to discuss the, the issue of environment and how place impacts on suicide risk. So Sarah um, approached me and asked me if I had something to contribute. And luckily for me, I was just coming to the end of a project that was funded from by Samaritans that was looking at social media and the impact of social media and the particularly content on social media and how that might relate to risk of self-harm and suicide. So it was a well-timed approach. And to all three of you, anyone who wants to answer, I must ask the standard research question, what is the importance of this topic area? For me, I... I very much take a sociological approach to suicide and I see it as a, a problem of society rather than a problem of, of, of the individual and my work would be very much influenced by the French sociological tradition going back to Emile Durkheim who wrote about suicide in the at the end of the 19th century and very much founded a sociological tradition of suicide and for Durkheim suicide is, is is like a mirror held up to society it tells us what's going on in society at any one time it tells us about the problems and dysfunctions in society at a given historical period so to understand society we need to to understand suicide and understand the complex relationship and dynamics between the individual and broader society. And by society, I mean economic problems, the impact of institutions, the immediate social, cultural and economic environment of the person. And then because I'm a sort of French studies scholar, there's also Albert Camus who said that suicide was the most important question uh, to ask, asking why someone would, would take their own life. There is no more important question than, than that. It is the central philosophical question. Suicide is at the centre of everything. And you get right into the sociological drivers of this. And we can see that reflected when I was reading through the paper. It seemed really interesting that there's very different approaches in different countries, very different outcomes. And, and as you mentioned earlier, very different policies, even within the four kingdoms of the UK. So, Dr. Hazel, can I go straight to you and ask you, what are some of those big differences? How does it manifest? I think actually there's some real kind of core commonalities. You can see some real differences in terms of the lengths of those documents. If you're looking at Northern Ireland, you're looking at over 100 pages. So it's really kind of meaty document. But what I think is really interesting is those kind of commonalities and convergences in the UK suicide prevention policies, which tend to be around um, kind of mental health support for individuals who are deemed at risk. And I put that in kind of air quotes, particularly surveillance to identify individuals, again, at risk. And then the kind of the restriction of lethal means uh, for anybody who is deemed to be at risk of suicide. So there's those kind of key convergences around means restriction, mental health support and identifying people at risk. You put at risk in those air commas. Can I ask? Yeah. Can you go a bit more into that, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I think very, very often kind of within our discipline, risk factors are seen as kind of quite kind of discrete, quantifiable, able to be isolated from one another. And actually, I think one of the 
the core things that that the project that I'm working on suicide in as politics is is trying to unpick is is actually well how do these kind of risk factors which are often conceptualized as extremely individual um, often kind of pathological risks are actually part of this broader kind of narrative that that Sarah was talking about about the kind of socio-economic and political conditions in which people live and therefore in which a life becomes or does not become unlivable. Can I ask you again a bit further about that? Because it's such a really interesting paper uh, on what what were those socioeconomic factors. Yeah. So again, I, like our work does not particularly concentrate on on the identification of of those factors. It is much more about thinking about how these kinds of policy interventions are constructed, and in thinking about how those policy interventions are constructed, then working backwards to see how the problem of suicide is constructed. Of course, there are those kind of massive, massive rafts of groups within the prevention policies that are identified as being at risk and and honestly there's probably over 40 groups that are considered at risk within these policies that are named particularly thinking about you know homeless people people in touch with criminal justice system lgbt plus people there's like a real range of different kinds of of factors that are identified within these policies Um, but actually i think rather than identifying these kind of risk factors in these groups at risk what it's quite interesting is to think about is how those kind of social relations contribute to that and how those conditions for living become unlivable within that so kind of rather than thinking about the kind of those individual risks as being like unemployment or homelessness um, or LGBT plus people being at risk um, actually when we think about what are these social conditions that produce that risk that make people at risk rather than thinking about the risk themselves being with in the individual. So I think it's a really important discussion and I think and, and it's one of the things that's, that I think about when I think about suicide research and self-harm research is that actually if you look at risk factors they don't really tell you that much because because you know it's like actually what's important is why is it is there an increased likelihood that somebody who has these characteristics dies by suicide but actually if you look at the data there's a lot of people who have the same characteristics who don't die by suicide and actually it's it's unpicking what it is about that particular person with those circumstances at the particular time and I think we we haven't that that's where the interest in really getting to grips with how how do we prevent suicide and I think one of the reasons I'm interested in suicide research is is that ultimately it is something that should be preventable in the grand scheme of things, you know, yes, there's structural determinants, but those are all something that are within our grasp to be able to do something about. So, you know, it's a, it's a tragedy of our times that people die by suicide when it's something we can do something about. Lots of people have different reasons as to why they come into suicide research. Mine was very, very circular, but I've had experience of friends who've died by suicide. And I think that was one of the drivers to think that was there something that we, and, and this is quite often what people ask themselves when they know that someone's died by suicide, was there something I could have done? Should I have known? How should have we done something differently? That sort of drives a lot of those questions. And ultimately, the driver of that question is that there should have been something that we can do, not as an individual to stop that individual dying by suicide, but as a society to create a place where people don't die by suicide. In any academic discussion, we very quickly get to the question of defining terms. So this podcast is about suicide and and self-harm. Perhaps we can start with self-harm and ask what constitutes self-harm? Every time I write a paper about self-harm, we have there's a discourse that goes, depending on where the paper goes and who the peer reviewers are, there's quite a a discourse on how you define self-harm. In the UK, 
Well, World Health Organization's got a, a very long um, definition of self-harm that basically is any any intentional act against your body, whether it's wishing to die or not, whether there's any in intent to die or not. And probably the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence say it a bit more simplistically that it's, that it's any act of, of harm regardless of intent to die. So it, an attempted suicide would come under the umbrella, general umbrella of, of self-harm. There's lots of terms in, in the literature, in professional discourse, and people talk about non-suicidal self-injuries. So quite often the, the definitions there, are sometimes they're related to the nature of the method of harm and or whether there's any intent to die associated with, with that. I always prefer the more general term self-harm for a number of a number of reasons. Because I think basically all of them are a manifestation of some sort of underlying distress. And that in some ways, the self-harm itself is an, is an act, regardless of any intent to die associated with an act. There's something about distress that's being enacted, even if there's not suicidal thinking with that. And I think that the suicide and self-harm are linked. I know that we've talked a little bit about risk factors, but if you look at risk factor research, the underlying psychological and social risk factors for self-harm and suicide are very, very similar. A lot driven by inequality of opportunities or inequality in power imbalances, about um, deprivation, those things that they're, they're linked in terms of risk factors. And self-harm, even without suicidal intent in the act itself, is associated with subsequent death by suicide. You're much more likely to die by suicide if you've had a previous episode of self-harm, even if that episode of self-harm wasn't associated with suicidal thinking. So all those are really important. And I always think that, that actually what we're talking about here is we're talking about people and not necessarily an act. So yes, we're talking about an act of self-harm or an attempted suicide or a suicide, but there's a person behind that. And one of the other things we also know is that you can have suicidal thinking and you can be thinking about suicide and wanting to end your life and you can engage in an act of self-harm that has nothing to do with those suicidal thinking and sometimes some people describe it as it's a way to resist thoughts of suicide so I think the concept of self-harm and suicide are intrinsically linked and complicated. I actually it really resonated kind of where you ended up there and I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this but my previous research was on um, LGBT plus youth suicide and when we were kind of talking about suicidal feelings, suicidal thoughts, suicidal attempts and um, with the young people who participated in, the, in my doctoral study one of the things that really really came up was this idea of kind of that self-harm had multiple different meanings one of which was exactly what you were just talking about Kathy so this idea that actually self-harm was engaged with as a practice to try and self-soothe, to de-escalate suicidal distress. And for some young people that actually couldn't be kind of disentangled. It was it was really difficult because sometimes if self-harm didn't work to reduce kind of those feelings of suicidal distress, that then that could become part of a suicide attempt. But that, that initial kind of practice, that initial engagement with self-harm was actually to try and soothe oneself. So I think it, it's it's really interesting, those kinds of relationships. Yeah, and I think the other interesting thing about because we make definitions as professionals, as uh, and as researchers, because they they are important because you need to tell people what you're talking about. But yeah. interestingly, in, in self harm, so even the, the the UK definition of, by the National Institute of Clinical Excellence excludes things like disordered eating, for example, or um, substance abuse, or risk, excessive risk taking are all excluded from the definition of self harm. 
But interestingly, if you look at so the work that we're doing on social media, particularly if you if you look at how what what people tag as self-harm on social media, then those distinctions that we have in professional discourse just don't apply. We did a, a study a couple of years ago now, and we looked at images that people tagged on social media as, as self-harm and user-generated content or the links that they'd chosen. And when you looked at the nature of those images, much of those were actually documenting things like extreme thinness. There was lots of posts about recovery that mirrored the language of sort of alcohol and substance addiction. You know, I'm six months clean this week. So actually, in when you're talking about the person, those definitional things aren't as clear cut. And we also know in the, in the back to risk factors that there's a link between things like eating disorders and self-harm in terms of, you know, there's an overlap in, in the people who might engage in one or, or one or the other or both. So I think they are linked, although definitionally we tend to exclude them. Um, so, yeah, I think it's always thinking about you go back to the there's a, always a person behind these definitions and people aren't people aren't so neatly put into boxes you're this or you're that person, you're, you know, we're, we're complex, complex beings with complex lives. Definitions is one of the issues that I come up against. I work with a, a trade union campaign led by Hazards, where we're trying precisely to have work-related suicides recognised and defined. At the present moment in the UK, they are not defined and are not recognized or or acknowledged in terms of legislation or policy. And for instance, according to the current legislation, if in the workplace someone has asthma or a rash or a broken limb that is linked to working conditions, that has to be reported to the authorities, it has to be investigated. Suicide doesn't need to be reported because it's presumed to be non-work-related because work-related suicide isn't defined and, and, and doesn't exist. And we're precisely calling for that definition and the idea that if a suicide takes place in the workplace or if there is material evidence of a link to work, then it should be reported, it should be investigated, it should be acted on. And the idea that numbers and justice are are linked, that if you don't count something, you can't account for it, you can't make others accountable. So definitions are very important. And as as far as the health and safety executive is concerned, work-related suicide doesn't exist. And suicide is voluntary, is individual, is, is complex and is disconnected from the workplace. So we're actually pushing for clearer definition in order to recognize, acknowledge and respond to what is a social reality which has been documented, but that, that there is an, a reluctance to to recognise and act on. And I understand that workplace suicide is recognised in other countries, is that right? Yes, a- absolutely. So, for example, in, in the United States, the United States has um, centrally collected numbers of workplace and work-related suicides since 1992. They've been collected centrally by the um, Bureau of Labour Statistics. In, in France, uh, work-related suicides are documented 
in Australia, in uh, Victoria, they're, they're, they're recorded and registered. In Japan, work-related suicide is considered to be a major public health phenomenon. And that, that's precisely the sort of argument we put to the HSC when they say, oh, it's this is too complex and subjective and individual to document. We, we say, well, in, in France and in Japan and in Australia and in Belgium and in Germany, it isn't considered to be too complex, too subjective or too difficult to record and to be taken seriously. Why is that the case only in the UK? That's an example of where definitions become really important, aren't they? Because it's actually about it's about naming something and saying what it is. I think when we're talking about the definitions of self-harm, some of it's about saying what it isn't or disputing over minor details when we're going, actually, what we're talking about here is all acts of, of harm and that have an, an underlying issue about distress. Yes, I understand that in, in Japanese, there's a single word for, for this phenomenon of workplace-related suicide. Is that right? In fact, there's there's two. Well, there's karojitsatsu, which means um, suicide by overwork, but there's also karoshi, which is death by overwork. So it's a, it's a recognised term, and it's it's very much treated as a, a public health phenomenon on which the government and employers need to act. And in 2014, there was a new. Uh, law put in place which requires government and employers to put in place preventative measures to to prevent suicides and work-related deaths uh, taking place. So I think there are there are models out there that the the UK could look towards. But as a as a basic minimum, these deaths should should be counted, you know, and they should be taken seriously. And suicide that is work-related or, or that occurs in the workplace should be treated as a health and safety issue and treated with the same rigor as any other work-related accident or, or work-related death. And uh, at the moment, it isn't. It's And that, that creates huge difficulties for bereaved family members because, the, you know, in a recent project that we did on, it was a small-scale project on 12 recent cases of, of, of suicide where work-related causes had been identified by an official source. We interviewed bereaved family members and there really was a, a deep-seated sense of injustice that this had happened, that there was sort of documented material evidence of, of, of links to work and yet it wasn't acknowledged and nobody was taking responsibility for, for what had happened. And worse still, that no changes had taken place in the workplace um, after the suicide. So there's a sense that mm. it's, it, it's, it's a sense of injustice about the person who has died, but also a sense that their death hasn't led to any important changes for others. And we have to remember that when someone dies by suicide, that person's spouse, that person's uh, children not only lose a salary, which is important, but they also are left with no recourse in terms of having a legal claim um, in relation to the employer for, for recompense in the same way that they would have in many other European countries and internationally. Yeah, and we were talking about government policies and how we can kind of shape narratives to help prevent suicides. 
Um, would you like to go into some detail about have has there been effective action from governments on this issue? Has there been a good case, a good example of what governments and societies can do? The evidence isn't there yet to say how effective it's been. But Hazel, when you were talking about that, that Northern Ireland had like a hundred page suicide prevention document. It's enormous. They're one of the places that seem to be a bit more on the ball with actually thinking about wider things that they can do. And, and I remember I was at a conference once and I was hearing a, a, a project that was looking at there's a particular bitch. I think it's in Belfast, might be in Belfast. They looked at that and it was a, a place where people would, it was like a destination that people would go to to take their life. And they were thinking, well, actually, how can we, in the UK, what tends to happen is that, you know, you maybe build a, put a fence up and, and put a, a, a sign to say, call the call Samaritans if you're um, but they decided to do something a bit different and they looked at thinking about the wider determinants of what might be leading people to think about suicide, why this place, and actually could they make the place a place where people didn't want to go to take their own life? So they actually did a lot of work to reimagine the place. Yes, they put up a barrier. It wasn't just a metal barrier. I think they made it and it looked like it was like um, metal flowers that that blew in the wind. So it stopped you being able to use that as a as a place to take your life but actually it wasn't it made it look like a nice place and they also thought but actually these people then they turn away from there and they'll go somewhere else let's make the environment where they're walking through somewhere that promotes positive thinking rather than so and so they they created pods that um you could go and sit down and there was people around to talk to so i think they were in the start of the evaluation so it'd be interesting to see whether that shows to be any effective or but um I just like the idea and maybe that, you know, that actually there are some places who were innovative. I think I went to the IAS conference that was in Derry a few years ago, and I think they've done similar kind of around, maybe around the foil bridge, but I'm not sure. I think there was... Yes, it was Derry, not Belfast. You're right. It's the, fo- the foil bridge. It's sometimes yes. called the Peace Bridge, I think. Yeah. 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 I think on this kind of policy, the, the idea of policy, I think one of the things that I'm I'm really intrigued by, and, and it's not necessarily a thing that is, is working well, I'm afraid, but um, I think one of the, the things I'm intrigued by is this kind of difference as I was doing the kind of the analysis of these eight suicide prevention policies from across the four nations of the UK. I was really, really interested in how we do the kind of balancing act of the kind of death prevention methods that we talk about in the paper. So things like restriction of lethal means, identifying populations at risk and and doing mental health support for those who have been identified Um, and the kind of the policy interventions that could happen that are around promoting the conditions for living so when we're talking about these kind of you know 40 plus groups at risk like well what can we do to actually look at those conditions for living and and transform them in different ways so one of the the examples that we talk about in the papers is idea of the job center as being a really good place to identify people at risk of suicide which undoubtedly there are you know there is potentially a good site to, to identify people who are at risk of suicide but there was no kind of conversation that seemed to be given any prominence around well, what can we do to tackle those kind of real structural issues that are happening that mean that people are in the job centre and feeling suicidal um, and I think that 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 for me is one of the kind of key areas that I'm really interested in in policy innovation is this kind of balancing of course we need crisis intervention of course we need um, to, to help people who are feeling suicidal um, in that immediate moment of crisis but 
what can we do that is a bit bigger than that? What can we do that's a bit more ambitious than that? That actually means that people want to continue living, not just that they are stopped from dying. And, and I think that's that's a really interesting kind of future avenue for, for policy. And that resonated. It was interesting that the, the journal was public mental health, wasn't because actually the public health bit, the understanding that there's structural drivers of, of inequalities in health, in physical and mental health, you know, have been talked about for decades. But actually, most of most of resources goes towards sorting out immediate problems as they arise without thinking about, well, how can we stop them arising in the first place? And actually, one of the things is that when you're thinking about suicide and, and the structural um, determinants is that these same structural determinants are responsible for lots and lots of poor health outcomes. So actually having a way to think about making a better world for everybody works for, works on a number of health outcomes, not just mental health and suicide and self-harm, but we, yeah, we, we haven't quite got there yet to, to think about how we join up those, um, those things. So in in sort of my um area one of the problems is that suicide prevention is very much voluntaristic it depends on getting employers on board and getting them to put in place um well-being strategies and other techniques that will stop suicides taking place and it's not to undermine those initiatives but to say that we do need a minimum framework in in place um, what we find is that um, some employers are, are very good and where a suicide takes place they investigate it they're interested in get, getting to the, the the bottom of what happened and making sure that other employees aren't at risk but it very much depends on the personality and the goodwill of that individual employer it will happen in some workplaces but not in others. So it's completely fragmented and it depends on the individual of a decision of an employer as to whether anything takes place or not. So what we're asking for is sort of a, a very minimum framework where if a suicide takes place, could it please be investigated as being potentially work-related? Investigations are really important in the, in the, the study that we did where an employer had made a decision to investigate the suicide, it did produce very important results and prevention methods were put in place as a result of the investigation. But again, it was, I think, about a quarter of the of the cases an investigation followed the suicide. And so a tendency for it to be left to uh, the, the, the goodwill of the individual employer also a frustration around well-being strategies. I remember one case we looked at where there was a suicide by a university lecturer and we interviewed quite a few of his colleagues afterwards and there was a real sense of, uh, there was a sense of anger against the way the response of the university to the suicide because they precisely had put the emphasis on on well-being strategies, they they organise wellness walks, yoga, therapeutic initiatives, whilst doing nothing to address what was very obviously the underlying causes, which were unmanageable workload. So that the well-being strategies were really a way of deflecting attention, and the colleagues that we spoke to felt 
you know, quite angry and, and bitter about how the death was responded to by the university and the fact that the university wasn't obliged to do anything, which it wasn't. You're not, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to make any changes. Another case just to mention that we looked at, which went back to 2019, there were four suicides in the same organisation in the space of uh, uh, two months in, in one year, 2019. And, you know, we did ask, well, if the response had been different after the first suicide, could the others have, have, have been prevented? Um, you know, and the, the tragedy that further suicides took place after the first one because of the the, the lack of, of the, the lack of investigation, the lack of um, rigorous response, the, the lack of adequate preventative measures after the first suicide. So let's get let's get a framework in place. Let's have guidelines that where a suicide play, takes place, the employer has to do a certain number of things and not just brush it off as something subjective as a mental health problem as as a as a personal issue that doesn't concern and we're talking often here about large organizations that employ hundreds and thousands of individuals and you can you can just you don't need much imagination to understand what happens when a suicide isn't taken seriously it it should be considered as the tip of an iceberg of of something more more um, of of something more complex that needs to be addressed and taken seriously and responded to. It sounds like we need more data on this uh, subject. It sounds like we need perhaps more research. Where would you see your own research heading in this area? Perhaps I can ask this to each of you in turn. My work, because I, I'm a professor of French studies, my, my interest has always been on the French workplace, on French labour studies. And in fact, my interest in suicide emerged from my interest in the French workplace and labour studies. And we then went on to undertake a study in the UK. So what I'm trying to do now is to do a comparative, a large comparative UK French study that looks at suicide cases and that tries to draw lessons from the different policy responses and the different institutional responses to work-related suicides in these two settings and what lessons can we learn nationally at European level and internationally by studying what happens in individual cases across two countries. Professor Sarah Waters, thank you very, very much. And can I ask the same question uh, to uh, Dr. Hazel Marzetti? Where do you see your research going again in this area? Okay, so we're at a really exciting point. Oh, I think it's exciting. I would say that I work on it. But uh, in our project, so we, we in the first phase of the project, we did this kind of critical policy analysis of the eight suicide prevention policies on every mention of suicide in the UK's four parliaments in the same time period, 2009 to 2019, and on nine charity campaigns. And at the moment, next month, starting 1st of August, we are taking those findings out uh, to the public and running a series of arts-based workshops um, with the public to see how the public think about these kind of political representations of suicide and suicide prevention. So that is our next step, which I'm super excited about. That is something to be excited yeah. about. That sounds really, really interesting. Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, Dr. Cathy Brennan, I think you can guess the question. Where do you see your research going in this area? 
Well, so, so the paper that was in the special edition was a review looking at the evidence on content found online and its relationship to self-harm and suicide. And one, one of the things that came out was actually we need a way to start to engage with the complexity of the issue. Um, and I think that's where that's our, ne- our next steps is putting together something where, where we can think about drawing together understandings of the person, the situation they're in, the context in which they're on social media, what they're doing on social media, and linking those all together to get a fuller picture of of what's happening. Um, It's important at the moment because there's a bit of a push to regulate social media, particularly to regulate content on social media. And it's being pushed without really much thought about what regulating content actually might mean. We'd like to do something that contributes to that, that debate a little bit. So for example, one of the things that we do know is that social media is sometimes the first port of call for somebody to talk about the fact that they're thinking about self-harm or they're having suicidal thoughts. It's the first time they've disclosed to somebody, in air quotes, because it, it might be just in a, in a forum. And one of the things that we haven't really started to think about in regulation is, is that there's people behind posts. So if we start regulating what people can post, then what happens to those people who are using social media to seek support, to find people who, who understand what, what they might be going through? Um, so we'd like to do some, something that's, that's looking at that. I'm also really interested in, in imagery. I'm quite excited about um, Hazel's project, actually. It'd be <laughs> one of the things that got me into research in self-harm and suicide was actually using creative methods with people who self-harm to help to, to see if that was a way to explore understandings about self-harm. So I've always been interested in the use of imagery and what we mean by images of, of self-harm. So I think that's that's the next port of call is to is to really understand how people use representations of self-harm through imagery on social media. I must ask, I mean, this question which has you know, not been sent to you, but often with these serious topics. They do get represented in fiction, in media. Is there a case of a fiction, a play, a book, a novel, anything like that, which you feel does deal with the issue sensitively and well? It's actually interesting because in in France, there's been a huge body of fiction linked to the phenomenon of, of, of work-related suicide for lots of different reasons. And one of the reasons, which is, I think, interesting, is that some of the key novels that were written and then that then went on to be turned into films were written by people in those companies. So um, there are at least two very well-known novelists who used to work at uh, France Telecom. France Telecom was the main French company where a wave of employee suicides took place. And so their novels are very much grounded in their experiences of being employees over 20 years in those companies. So these are really, you know, work, they're, they're novelists, but they're, they're also former employees. One of the key novelists whose, whose book was turned into a film and had a nervous breakdown as a result of his experiences working at France Telecom. He wrote a novel, it was turned into a film with a very famous uh, French actress. So some of these 
novels and films are really brilliant and some of them are based very, very closely on real events. Um, there's a film called Corporate that, that, that came out a few years ago that was based very, very closely on what happened in France Telecom. And it's, it's the story of a, of, of a work-related suicide, but the methods that are, it's a brilliant film, but the methods that are conveyed and represented in the films are based on the actual methods that were used by managers in the company. So this is, for whatever reason, it is a major, it's a source of great interest for filmmakers, for documentary makers, for, for novelists, for, for writers of, of all sorts. So there's a really interesting body of work. And I've always believed that, that fiction is important, that fiction gives us a very important perspective on, on the human condition, that it, it shouldn't just be dismissed as not being factual and not being important. Fiction is really important and gives us an incredibly rich insight into mental health in the workplace and suicides in the workplace in, in France. For me, and I think that's really important, isn't it, Sarah, that, that actually thinking about empathy and understanding actually that's that's where literature and, and film and all those things and, and other cultural things can come into it something that I always recommend and it's not because I think it's a really good representation but actually something about helping people understand the complexity is, is it's a book um, A Little Life by Liana Gihara which is basically a novel about um following the lives of four people in in America, one of them who struggles with mental health difficulties and, and, and self-harms. It's, it's actually, it's a really long book and it sounds like it's it's um, deep material, but it's one of those books that you can't put down. It, it's it's a great book to represent the complexity of, of characters and the, and the different reasons behind why people go down certain paths and also the power of systems around and the people around you to, to create a positive environment and to help in recovery. So yeah, as said, I would always recommend A Little Life. I have, it's not something I, I have any monetary um, value in, it's in and of itself. So <laughs> I should take the recommendation. No, genuinely, thank you very, very much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about our guests and for a transcript of today's episode, please see our show notes on our website. Thank you for listening. <laughs>